You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Criminalizing Economic Inequality Through the Prohibition on Insider Trading by Kevin Douglas. My talk is going to be uh, slightly narrower than the previous title suggested. Um, instead of securities regulation writ large, I'm going to give an overview of how the prohibition on insider trading specifically criminalizes several forms of economic inequality. Uh, and I'm not talking about something as uh, clear and open, you know, common in a popular discourse as like inequality of income or inequality of wealth, but instead something more, things that are much more obscure, like information inequality, inequality of opportunity to profit while trading in securities markets, inequality of price. Um, but I'll unpack it a bit as we move on. Now, before the recent controversies over congressional insider trading, which is a completely different thing, which I don't really get into, but happy to talk about in the Q&A if you want. Before that recent controversy, the, the most, I think, popular I instance of insider trading would involve Martha Stewart in the early 2000s going to jail um, because she sold stock ahead of the announcement that some uh, pharmaceutical company wasn't going to have a drug approved. Um, and she spent about five months in jail, was fined over $200,000. Um, and that's actually pretty minor in terms of the kinds of penalties that people f often face under insider trading laws, and especially after the year 2009 when um, a, a, a recent prosecutor got real serious about it. And so you have this gentleman, Preet Bharat, I'm sorry, um, Raj Rajratnam, who received the longest sentence in, in history for insider trading. He was sent sentenced to 11 years in jail served almost all of it, and fined over $150 million. He was the founder and the head of a hedge fund called Galleon Group. Um, they say that on a regular basis, he received information from insiders. They, there's a call floating around the internet that involves him saying to one of his subordinates at the hedge fund that he heard from a board member at Goldman Sachs that they were going to miss an earnings projection some quarter. And when you have that kind of information, uh, when that kind of information comes out, usually the stock price goes down. If you have it ahead of time, you can either short the stock and generate a profit or sell the stock and avoid a loss. Um, so he received information from someone he was friends with on the board saying that they weren't going to meet an earnest projection. People saw, they say that that kind of thing happened on a regular basis and that's how his hedge fund was successful. Um, and so he faced, uh, not only did he receive 11 years in prison but his, and that $100 million fine, his hedge fund was fined billions of dollars. Another example is a gentleman named uh, Matthew Martoma. His example is a little bit different. He buddied up to a guy who was a, a researcher involved in a drug that was aimed at trying to cure Alzheimer's. And he pretended to be just interested in the science and hung out with the guy and through this friendship he created, uh, was able to find out early whether or not the drug was gonna be approved by the FDA and was able to trade on that kind of information. The officials say that he was able to generate over $276 million for his hedge fund, SAC Capital, uh, based on practices of that kind, right? And so he received a nine-year sentence and was fined over at least $9.8 million. I wrote at least $9.8 million because what happens with insider trading laws, they don't just take away the profits that you generated that they think were uh, identified as illegal profits. The law is set up so that you can be penalized three times the profits you generated or losses avoided while engaged in insider trading. 
Um, and that was a bonus he received for the trades um, in question. And so he could have been fined three times that in addition to the 9.8 million. So it's worth asking what exactly is insider trading? Which activities, um, because some of this might just sound like information gathering. Some of it might sound to you like the thing you'd expect a journalist to do if they were trying to get the scoop on a story, right? So exactly what kind of activities do lawmakers consider insider trading and the illegal kind of um, information gathering and uh, illegal kinds of trading on information? Well, the classic case or the basic outline is that if you trade on information received from an employer or some other kind of exclusive source, that's going to be considered insider trading. Kind of vague, right? Well, let's imagine that you're the CEO of a company like McDonald's, um, and you know that you're going to have a higher than expected earnings period. And so you buy the stock ahead of the announcement of the higher than expected earnings. Courts are going to say that you engaged in insider trading and that you have breached a, a, a commitment of trust and confidence to both the corporation and the shareholders. They're going to say that fairness requires that you first disclose that information to the public at large before trading on it or that you abstain from trading. Either disclose to the public at large or abstain from trading. That's what fairness requires. Another scenario involves the CEO of McDonald's maybe buying a second company stock. Let's say that McDonald's decided they were going to try and take over Five Guys. Uh, if the CEO of McDonald's buys Five Guys stock ahead of the announcement of the pending takeover, uh, what usually happens is when a company, one company tries to take over another, they usually offer a premium. So if Five Guys is trading at $100 on average for the last 30 days, McDonald's might offer 125, 150. And when those announcements come out about the intent to take over a second company, the stock price of the target company usually jumps close to uh, the offering price, right? So if the CEO buys the stock ahead of the announcement um, and then the announcement comes out, he should be able to generate a profit re relatively quickly. Um, and courts are going to say that he is engaged in insider trading and has defrauded his employer, McDonald's Corporation, out of the exclusive use of their confidential business information. For those who don't have a legal background, that, that phrasing is like a technical lawyer language that kind of implies property rights. Exclusive use rights is usually what we think of when we think about property. So they're essentially saying that he has stolen information from his company, right? And they say fairness requires that he at least tell his company, which in this scenario would mean telling the board of directors, that he intends to trade on the information uh, before he do so. You got your third situation, which is much more like what we spoke about at the beginning. Martha Stewart's situation, Roger Ratna, Matthew Martoma. It's a situation in which an insider tells an outsider some information that they can trade on, um, and the outsider trades on and is able to generate a profit. Uh, courts are going to say that and if the insider receives any kind of benefit, whether it's a financial benefit or if it's simply tipping to a family member or friend, and we imply that you just feel good uh, helping out family members and friends, so that's a kind of benefit you can be punished for. Uh, courts are going to say that that's also a form of insider trading, and what fairness requires, again, is that whether you're the insider or outsider, that you tell this information to the public at large before trading on it, or you abstain from trading. Now, that's the kind of activity that's usually described as insider trading. What kind of justifications, it's worth thinking about what kind of justifications are usually given to explain putting people in jail for anywhere between 10 to 11 years for this kind of activity. Um, I'm saying that folks are criminalizing economic inequality. 
that's not the way people usually explain or describe what's happening. So I should uh, unpack what people usually use as justifications for this kind of activity. The most prominent kind, in the case law anyway, is that we describe insider trading as a kind of theft. Um, it, it's this idea that the employee has breached a fiduciary duty to his or her employer. Um, to get what a fiduciary duty is, if you've been an employee of any company, you were a fiduciary to that company, and it simply means that there are lots of different kinds of fiduciaries. It simply means that you have to use the assets associated with your relationship, your boss's property, for the sole benefit of your boss, for your principal. Um, and if you were to ever receive any kind of personal benefit using those assets, um, you have to do so with your, you can only do so with your boss's informed consent. Otherwise, we consider it a form of unjust enrichment. So as an example, imagine that you work for a company, it has a car, you decide that on the weekends you're gonna drive that car to make extra money for Uber or delivering pizzas or something like that. If you don't get informed consent first, any profits you generate are called unjust enrichment and your boss can take it away because that property is only supposed to be used for your employer's benefit. So we can think of inside information as something like a trade secret that's supposed to be used to help the business to run properly. To, in, the, in our Five Guys example, it's supposed to be used to help McDonald's to successfully take over Five Guys, not be used by the, uh, the CEO to generate personal profits in the stock market. And so we can consider that a form of unjust enrichment, um, a, pro a breach of the duty of loyalty. Um, and that's the way people usually articulate why we put people in jail for insider trading. That's the best argument that's out there. Uh, in a couple of slides, I'll tell you why you ultimately shouldn't buy that explanation, but that's the best one we're given, I think. Another explanation that's given is that the insider trading law is a kind of prophylactic law. It's an interesting phrase that pops up in the law a lot. Um, even if you don't consider insider trading a form of theft, we might decide that insider trading might be co correlated with some suspicious behavior by corporate insiders, and we want to kind of head them off of the pass. We want to stop them from doing this benign thing to prevent them from engaging in other abusive activity. Maybe they would time the release of information in such a way that's not meant to help investors to make sound decisions. Maybe they would do it in such a way that simply helps them to generate profits. Maybe they would run the business in such a way that isn't aimed at you know, generating profits for the company or creating amazing products, but instead they would run it in such a way that helps them to properly time their trades and again, generate products, generate profits when trading stocks. And so we want to avoid, head them off of the pass by you know, eliminating or pro prohibiting this potentially benign activity so that they don't engage in the abusive kind of activity. This explanation is the one that I think is most comes up in the news. Um, it's the idea that lawmakers want securities markets to operate like a in some kind of way like a, a level playing field. And there's a kind of basic version of this argument, a more complex one. The basic one is that, plain and simple, um, fairness requires some kind of equality of opportunity to generate profits and to succeed in securities markets. Um, that's just plain and simple what fairness requires. And when we have these corporate insiders who have a better opportunity to generate profits than those outside the company, that's just unfair and there's something wrong with that. We want to level the playing field between insiders and outsiders. A more complex version of the argument says something to the effect of if there are information asymmetries in a market, especially securities markets, it's going to turn off the ordinary investor. They're going to say, hey, these insiders have more information than me. They're going to be able to win most of the time when we're trading against each other. That's going to turn me off. I'm not going to want to participate. 
American uh, securities markets dry up, capital goes away, big business can't be funded, the economy goes down to tubes, and we have to stop that. Why, with these relatively persuasive-sounding uh, justifications, do I think this is actually an attempt to punish economic inequality? That's what you're asking yourselves, right? Uh, the first reason is, if this is really about theft, then the defense against liability that's been put in place, the way you avoid the illegal kind of insider trading, doesn't make sense. Remember, we, we, we say we have this disclose or abstain rule. If you have inside information as the CEO of the company, you either disclose it to the world at large or you abstain from trading on it. That's supposed to allow you to avoid unjust enrichment. If you remember, I said a second ago, if you were to try to use the company car for your own personal benefit, the way you avoid what they call unjust enrichment is to get informed consent. So you are disclosing something. You're, di you're disclosing to your principal, your boss, what you intend to do with the company's property in order to get the right kind of consent. You are not disclosing to the world at large this important information that the company has to use to run its business, whether it's the stage of takeover or something else. And, and you don't have this other prong, which is about avoiding the activity altogether. And so the there's a disconnect between what we really f expect from a regime that's protecting property rights, especially property rights and information that is in part valuable because it is secret. Imagine the CEO, while you know, in, in the context of this takeover, telling everyone, hey, we're going to stage this takeover, so now I get to trade on the information. That undermines the that, that, um, to the extent that everyone knows that the company's going to stage a takeover, that'll make the stock price jump up earlier than the company wants, maybe more than the company wants, and it'll, under, it'll essentially make the deal more expensive. So the idea that this is about theft when the defense is not informed consent, which will require consent either from the board of directors or from the shareholders themselves, um, undermines, in my mind, the idea that what we're looking for is a commitment to protecting property rights. And because one way to avoid the problem is to tell everyone about the thing, it seems like we're trying to foster information equality among everyone in the marketplace. This idea that information asymmetries are supposed to undermine the confidence of the ordinary investor to trade in securities markets, to me, on its face, just seems wrong. Um, people have probably heard about trade secrets. Most companies have some kind of information that they use to have a strategic advantage. Um, and most, I've hardly heard of anyone say, I'm not gonna buy Coca-Cola unless they tell me the full recipe and how they put together their sodas. I'm not gonna buy from Five Guys until, unless they tell me everything about their supply chain and how they choose their products and run their business and the inner workings of it all. Company, trade secrets actually help companies to thrive and help them to have com uh, advantages compared to their competitors and help them to pull in customers that they otherwise would not have. And because of that obvious fact, the idea that have information asymmetries are gonna push the ordinary investor away from uh, um, wanting to buy and sell securities, to me, seems on its face false. Oh, and, and in case someone thinks, oh, but securities markets are different. There's a case of Goldman Sachs, uh, uh, a Goldman Sachs employee being prosecuted for stealing trade secrets associated with high-frequency trading. He stole a program that was used to uh, help the computer you know, have its, run its algorithm to, to decide when to trade. Guy faced like seven years in jail or received a seven-year jail sentence sometime between 2007 and 2011 uh, for stealing trade secrets from Goldman Sachs that are associated with uh, securities trading. So the courts 
seem to recognize that you can have trade secrets in uh, the securities and investments world that are aimed at helping the company to you know, run better. It's not like we have this absolute expectation that for some reason it doesn't work in this context. The last one, this level playing field expectation. In my mind, the best way to understand this is to try and interpret it as a commitment to some form of equality of opportunity for people participating in securities markets. And I think it's really important when we use that phrase to ask what kind of opportunities are we talking about? Sometimes people talk about equality of opportunity and they're thinking we want equality in the eyes of the law. You know, we want to make sure that when the judge's grandson is facing charges that he's not going to get off just because he's the judge's grandson. We want to make sure that the congressman or woman doesn't get to uh, drive while intoxicated and avoid tickets. We want to avoid something that seems like the divine right of kings. Kings get to kill people, but civilians don't. Um, it seems like a lot of people think that's what we're talking about when we talk about equality of opportunity. But in this context, I think we're thinking about equality of opportunity in an economic way. It's as if Kevin Douglas is supposed to have the same opportunity to generate profits when trading as Warren Buffett. Um, despite the fact that I write and teach about securities regulation all the time, I only invest in index funds and mutual funds, and I have no skills whatsoever at picking stocks. Warren Buffett has been doing this thing for decades. From a very early stage, he was better than his peers. And the idea that I'm going to have an equal opportunity as Warren Buffett to generate profits in securities markets doesn't make sense. The idea that he's not supposed to be able to take advantage of the relationships and the knowledge that he's developed over time compared to the, my lack of information knowledge doesn't make sense. So this entire approach to thinking, I think, doesn't really seem sensible. Um, there's this side note in which, like, in business law in general, we actually sometimes think of business opportunities as some party's property and not something that we expect everyone to have equal access to. But I can get into the technicalities of that in the Q&A if you want me to. Um, but let's say you believe me. Let's say you buy that what's happening in the law amounts to some kind of uh, attempt to criminalize various kinds of economic inequality. Again, not wealth inequality, not income inequality, inequality of information, inequality of opportunity to profit in the markets, inequality of price. Why is that a problem? First, um, it's a form of wealth redistribution. And most people in, in this audience have probably heard criminalize economic inequality. You probably thought wealth redistribution automatically. You're probably on board that that's bad, punishing productive people. Um, and, and things of that nature. I think that's just the minimum because you also have this prong that's like a form of wealth nullification. Um, that this part of the disclosure abstain rule where the only way you avoid insider trading is to potentially share the information with the public at large, which will sometimes undermines not only the exclusivity of the information, but also undermines the usefulness of it to the extent that it being secret is a part of what helps it to be profitable for the company. Uh, this disclosure abstain rule also acts as a form of wealth nullification. The other problem is we are punishing economic inequality in the name of protecting property rights. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing, right? We're here to protect companies and investors from these horrible insiders and stop them from abusing their positions. And the fact is, we're actually punishing people for having advantages compared to others in the marketplace. To me, that's a problem, a, a really, really big problem. 
Um, it happens in other contexts as well. You'll hear people say, hey, we need a market solution to this thing. And they imply that they mean free markets, but they don't. You got to look out for that. The last thing, uh, one of the things that's the biggest problem in this, in this space is the fact that having equality of information or equality of opportunity among various parties is essentially impossible. And because it's impossible, you, you have two options. You can either say, hey, this commitment we've made isn't possible. We can't enforce this law. We should drop it. Or you can enforce the law arbitrarily. You can sometimes punish people with information advantages and sometimes let them go forward without them. So, so going back to our examples, you had Raj Rajratnam, who had some friend at Goldman Sachs who let him know openly and voluntarily, hey, we're not going to meet our earnings projections. And then you have Matthew Martoma, who essentially pretended to be interested in someone's friendship to slowly but surely get information about an FDA drug trial um, uh, approval or not. In my mind, it, it makes sense that certain kinds of information gathering would operate the way we think about journalist information gathering. Sometimes it's just going to be hard work using your connections and leads and coming up with useful information. And sometimes it's going to be an invasion of privacy, the kind of thing you should punish um, in the same way you would punish a breaking and entering or fraud or hacking or something to that effect. But the fact that we don't draw a clear line between these two kinds of activities means that people were going to jail for productive activity, for, for productive work. And it happens in an arbitrary way. Sometimes people avoid liability in the name of protecting property rights, and sometimes they don't. That's, a, to me, the major problem here. You also have lawmakers who are upset about people sometimes getting off for insider trading. The, uh, a recent example is you had a gentleman, a couple of people, who used computer hacking to break into you know, companies' files, find out information that wasn't public, and trade on that information to generate profits. And there, were, uh, there was a chance that the hacker could not face liability for insider trading. Because a hacker or a thief has no fiduciary obligations to anyone. <laughs> They're a thief, right? But uh, a lot of lawmakers and a lot of enforcement officials were very, very upset that these parties might not face liability. And so you now have a law on the, uh, that's being proposed that would expand the definition of insider trading to make sure we include hackers. You might think, why does it sound like uh, Kevin has a problem with that? Because hacking is already illegal. The person would have already faced several years in jail and significant fines for hacking and corporate espionage. It's already a crime. We don't have to, it doesn't make sense to dump on top of that another crime um, unless it was going to be simply the disgorgement of that person's profits. You stole my information to go generate profits. The law would usually work to simply take those profits away and give it to the party whose information was stolen um, as a form of um, eliminating the unjust enrichment, not compensation if there wasn't real harm, but still not allowing the thief to profit from his stealing, right? But you don't need your investor uh, insider trading penalties, which include three times the amount pro you know, generated in profits or three times the amounts avoided. So to me, that, that's where the thing gets crazy and where you have people disagreeing about where the line goes, where it should or shouldn't be. Because, because in large part, we actually disagree about whether or not we're trying to protect property rights or trying to punish economic inequality. All right. What does justice require? At a minimum, it requires that we only enforce realistic laws and realistic conceptions of justice and fairness. Um, 
you might not have been able to tell from what I've said so far, but there are at least three conceptions of fairness that operate in American law and culture, um, especially in business law. On the one hand, there's actually case law out there that treats fairness as the consensual transaction. Um, that's in line with this idea that if you want to use the company car to have an Uber business on the side, you need the informed consent of your employer. If you were not an employee, but just a stranger to the company, you would just need regular consent. As long as there's no misrepresentation or, or threats of violence, you just need regular consent to have the transaction be considered you know, morally upstanding and upright, right? So there's the consent-based notion of fairness that exists in American law and culture. There's also the conception of fairness that we need some kind of level playing field or equal bargaining power. Some, some version of economic equality has to exist. And again, it's never really articulated as a form of wealth or income equality. It's usually described as equal bargaining power or something else. And in, in, inside a trading space, equal information. We're trying to eliminate information asymmetries. We're trying to create a level playing field. A third kind of fairness that pops up in the law is the idea that we need prices to be somewhere near the intrinsic dollar value of the product. Whether it's a stock or a bond, things have intrinsic prices or intrinsic values, and we want the price to be as close to that as possible. As far as I can tell, there's no such thing as an intrinsic price to a product. As I've already said, there's no way to achieve economic equality in any way, shape, or form. There's no way for me to have the same opportunities as Warren Buffett. Um, the same knowledge, the same relationships, the same skill, it's impossible. Um, and the only kind of equality that seems to, one, observable, and seems to actually foster economic growth and prosperity for the parties to transactions and for the economy at large, is that consensual transaction kind of fairness and justice. So the thing to do is to advocate for only pursuing a kind of fairness and justice that revolves around consensual transactions. The other part is we have to protect the ability, which ultimately means in the insider trading context, we have to protect the ability of information owners to produce, use, and license third parties to trade on the information in securities markets. Um, right now, the way the law works, there are a bunch of hurdles to companies trading in their own stock without making very detailed announcements to the world at large as to why they're doing it. They can't just say, I think we think our stock is undervalued, so we're going to buy it up. Um, they have to tell you exactly why they think it's undervalued, their plans for the future, how they're financing the thing, a whole host of other things. Um, and they're prohibited from consenting to parties trading on the information because of things like uh, 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 SEC ruled like Regulation FD, Regulation Fair Disclosure. It actually makes it so that uh, public companies can't share non-public information with a handful of analysts that they trust and have special relationships with. If they're going to share any material non-public information with simply one person, they have to share it with the world at large in some kind of public disclosure like an 8K or something like that. Um, so I think justice requires allowing people to produce, use, and license third parties to trade on the information in securities markets. Um, we should only put people in jail for fraud when we have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that they've actually committed fraud. No prophylactic law. For me, that's too much like Minority Report. Uh, the idea that insider trading is correlated with the potential for corporate abuse, but I haven't proven any corporate abuse, I think that's a problem. It happens in a lot of areas of law, but for me, uh, putting the burden on either plaintiffs or prosecutors to prove that the thing happened is uh, a very important part of doing this. This is going to seem like a left curve. But uh, allow people to sell based on bad information. Not fatal information, like the company's going to be delisted per se, 
uh, but at least bad information. Stock prices go up and down. It's a part of trading in publicly traded companies. It's a part of public markets. And so I do think people should be able to sell ahead of the release of bad news. Maybe not the insiders who created the bad news, um, but I think people should be able to do so within certain constraints. Um, what can you do as we wrap up? There is a law pending in the Senate. It's actually got passed by Congress twice, once under Trump, once under Biden. It's called the Prohibition Against Insider Trading Act. Um, and the one thing you could do is write your representatives in Congress and tell them uh, that the law needs to allow information owners to use and license third parties to trade on the information in securities markets. Um, this means that consent of the information owner should be a defense against liability for insider trading. That's the major thing that has to be updated in the current version of the law that they're considering in the Senate. Um, if someone asks you about insider trading, if it comes up in conversation, you should ask, why is it a problem? Maybe these other people have better explanations than I do as to why we consider it a bad thing and maybe it'll be more persuasive. Um, but I think the vast majority of people who are both for and against the prohibition don't actually get why lawmakers and why courts have said they're putting people in jail for insider trading. So ask people who are bothered by the activity, why do you think it's wrong? And again, what's happening in Congress is slightly different than what's happening when we're thinking about publicly traded companies and uh, business insiders trading on information. Ask for specifics when people say that what they want is a level playing field. Are you talking about equality in the eyes of the law? Are you saying you don't want uh, people who have connections to judges and lawmakers to get special treatment? Or are you saying you want Kevin Douglas and Warren Buffett to have an equal opportunity to profit when trading in securities markets? That last part doesn't make sense. We shouldn't fight for that. We shouldn't punish people when their trades and you know, market activity of, uh, doesn't fit that model because that model can't be achieved. And that's it. Um, I will take any questions. Thank you for your talk. It was excellent. Thanks. I don't know anything about this subject except what you just covered. Okay. So, um, then I'm right. I have no. a question. <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, besides the obvious uh, injustice that you mentioned at the beginning of the people going to jail for things that don't look like rights violations to me, um, what are some of the other um, injustices or wider societal problems caused by insider trading laws. For example, I thought this talk was going to be about how um, insider trading laws cause actual inequality in economics. Um, is there any relationship there? I, uh, I think I reversed your, uh, that, that you were talking about the opposite, but maybe there's something there. Yeah. Um, no. So um, from my perspective, this, this is a broader thing, which didn't come up here, or maybe it did a little bit with the Warren Buffett example. I think economic inequality is a necessary part of existence, and there's nothing that can undermine it. And I think what happens is it's what people describe as a background effect in terms of it's always there all the time. And what people do is they take an actual injustice and decide that that actual injustice caused economic inequality, even though economic inequality would have been there anyway. And so um, 
but the fact is, economic e inequality is also generate you know also generated. So it, you can either have the Bernie Madoff who has billions of dollars because he's stealing and lying, or you can have the Bill Gates who has billions of dollars because he's created valuable products, um, or you can have government organizations that have billions of dollars because they're taxing the heck out of everybody. Right? No matter what, economic inequality is going to exist. And the question is, is it happening because of consensual transactions, or is it happening because of fraud and coercive taxation? Um, as it relates to other injustices, there are others in the sense that there are companies and individuals that avoid profitable transactions and profitable trading because they don't know where the line is. And because lawmakers often move the line arbitrarily every five to 10 years. The most recent move in the line has been, so I, I gave you the example of the McDonald's CEO buying a target company stock, knowing that his company wants the stock. There's a guy who recently got charged with insider trading because he operates in a company that was about to be acquired. His company has competitors. He figured some third company was probably gonna buy one of his competitors as well because usually there are trends in how uh, 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 mergers and acquisitions happens in industries. So he doesn't buy his own company stock. He doesn't buy stock in the company that's gonna buy his company. He buys stock in a company that is most likely to also become a target at some point in the future because his company is a target right now. He was charged with insider trading. Um, and a part of him being charged with insider trading, you know, the, the, uh, his lawyers were able to come up and say, look, that has never been described as insider trading before. It turns out his company put a policy in place that says you can't use any of our information that you gain here as an employee for trading at all and that uh, decided to allow, that made it so that a judge wouldn't toss the case and allow the SEC to bring what we call a civil action uh, to punish him for, in, to, to hold him liable for insider trading. His company didn't bring the, the action. Um, so he's still facing charges in this expanded way. And the company itself had the, these restrictions in place. Um, and now he's facing these penalties, despite the fact that there's no case law out there beforehand that would have described it as a illegal activity. So ever-expanding areas of law, people avoiding potentially profitable uh, trades just out of fear of where the line is going to be dropped at some point in the future. Sorry, we have a question from uh, our chat. Uh, Ivan Gressel asks, do you think McDonald's should be allowed to sue its CEO in civil court for using confidential information to trade? Uh, short answer, yes. Um, I do buy into unjust enrichment theory and the idea that you're the CEO, directors, officers, all employees, your fiduciaries, you're supposed to be using McDonald's information, the information that um, is developed by McDonald's, even if you're the one that develops it, develops it, you're developing it for McDonald's, it's their property, it's their information. And so you should need their permission to be able to trade on it for personal profits. So if the company doesn't give their permission, I think they should be able to sue for what's called unjust enrichment. You won't face criminal liability, you won't face three times, a three times your profits penalty. Instead, they just get to take the, pro the profits away and give it back to the company. That said, I also think that the company should be allowed to put a policy in place that says the CEO is allowed to trade on the information, um, and that would require a kind of categorical consent. It, it wouldn't make sense because uh, on the one hand, it could be the board of directors that gives the consent on a case-by-case -case basis, but to the extent that people decide it's shareholders who have to consent to that thing, you can't tell shareholders and publicly traded companies, hey, here's a secret information, can I trade on it without it no longer being secret? 
So you would likely need a kind of categorical consent that says somewhere in like the founding documents of the company, uh, the board of directors is allowed to authorize employees and third parties to trade on our inside information in stock markets. And if companies decide to pursue that route, I think they should be free to do so. And with whatever caveats and controls might make sense for shareholders and exchanges. Hello. Um, thank you so much. That was fascinating. I don't know very much about this subject either. I'm just curious, as a layperson, let's assume we live in rights land now, and insider trading is legal in the way that we would like it to be. So I wonder if you've thought a lot about, uh, at all about, you know, what would the world look like then? Would markets become more efficient? What would the implications be? Yeah. Um, what would happen if insider trading were legal? Um, insider trading had not, it was legal up until 1961, and it wasn't criminalized until someone at the Securities and Exchange Commission um, uh, punished someone for it and said that it was illegal, said that the laws that were on the books made it illegal, even though the laws he pointed to were on the books for at least 30 years before anyone ever got punished for insider trading. Um, I think... I don't know about the world being more efficient. I think some companies would buy into and adopt and support folks uh, engaging in insider trading and some would not. Um, in terms of what would be positive and negative in the marketplace, um, I think you would have people essentially having a better insight into what's happening in companies without explicit disclosures on a more regular and frequent basis. And what I mean is, when posit there's already, there are cases in the books where like mining companies make amazing discoveries and they have to buy up the mineral rights quietly before they can tell any of their stockholders that we made amazing, amazing, amazing mineral discovery. And so, but the insiders slowly but surely were buying up the company's stock because they knew that the discovery was so amazing that the stock price was gonna jump once the public found out. And what happens is slowly but surely the stock price goes up. And then people start to ask, hey, is something going on? Is there positive news out there? And they're like, nah, nothing to report. Um, and eventually they do put out there that, yes, we made this amazing mineral find. And it's after they have most of the rights bought that they need to make the project successful. But through the purchasing from the insiders, positive news was able to go. It was indirectly communicated to people. Um, and so folks know that something positive was going on. A lot of people say that... Um, that insider trading hurts the counterparties to transactions. But the fact is, because the stock price is going up when these insiders are buying, the people who are selling are selling for more than they would have otherwise sold if the insider trading is not happening. So it's better for the counterparties. Um, the, and the law currently is weird because it punishes, the it allows counterparties to sue insiders uh, to have private standing the way the employer is, we would expect the employer to under what I've explained, they allows counterparties to the transactions to also sue insiders for insider trading as if they've been injured. And the fact is, they either don't move the stock price or they move it in such a way as to benefit the outsiders. Thank you we so much. We have another question from our chat. Alex Lamb's, uh, Lamb uh, asks, when a politician trades, that information is made publicly uh, available. Is it okay for individuals to then trade based on this uh, information? Say that again. Uh, when a politician trades, that information is made publicly uh, available. Is it okay for individuals to trade based off this information? Um, definitely, because um, on the one hand, it's kind of like taxation and welfare programs. It's like they're put in place and to act like they're not there um, doesn't make sense. 
Um, but at the same time, I think when politicians trade, I, I think the idea that politicians should reveal their trading is a sensible approach in the sense that um, what they're doing, to the extent that what we're worried about is one of two things, the trading on classified information, information that's not available to the public at large, um, I think that is a problem and that should be restricted. If they're trading on their anticipated votes in the legislature and what laws get passed, that should definitely be restricted. Like if they know that my law is going to either destroy or help an industry, I think they should definitely be prevented from engaging in that kind of trading. And so um, uh, they're, dis they're disclosing the information I think is an important part of us finding out they're disclosing their trades is an important part of us finding out whether or not they're doing engaged in that kind of activity. Um, and once the information is out there, the information is out there, you know, use it for journalism or use it for stock trading. Um, I, I think it becomes appropriate. Hi. Yeah. At the end, you talked about trading on upcoming bad news and uh, that might be subject or should or could be subject to certain constraints. So one is, could you give a sense of what certain constraints do you have in mind? And uh, second is, what do you how would you put the essential principle differentiating between trading on upcoming bad news and good news, which makes bad news subject to certain constraints? Okay. Um, thanks. Good question. Um, in the law, the, under common law, not that this makes it a good thing, but under common law, there are at least about four reasons why you might be held legally liable for keeping secrets before a business transaction. It's an activity called fraudulent non-disclosure, illegal secret keeping. Um, and inside a trading case law, we try to fit everything under one of those four categories, breach of a fiduciary duty of loyalty. Another common one is what we call fatal defects or material defects. And so you can imagine if you're selling a house um, and you know that the house is full of termites, but you don't tell the potential buyers, uh, you know that, you know, for the most part, people aren't looking for houses with termites in them. You might say that, um, you know, they have an obligation to search for termites on their own. But if you, if you know that the thing you're selling can't do what the buyer expects, we're going to call that a material defect. And we're going to say that you uh, have an obligation to tell them ahead of time uh, about that thing. So in my mind, uh, another one is that if you created the expectation in the buyer's mind, you have an obligation, and, and, but that expectation either never was true or became untrue at, at some point, you have an obligation to tell them that this expectation is no longer true. So either a regular reasonable person's expectation or an expectation you created in their mind, if it's no longer true, you have an obligation to tell them. In my mind, the way that might happen in the securities markets is that if something has gone so wrong with a company that it's going to be delisted from the stock exchange. Like stock exchanges have rules, and if you break too many of their rules, they kick you off the exchange, and now people can't uh, easily go to their brokers to buy and sell your stock. That's a fundamental part of what people are expecting when they buy securities, is that if tomorrow I decide I don't want it, there'll be an easy place for me to sell it. Um, if that is no longer tr true, I can imagine that being the kind of fatal defect that I think um, if a person knows is going to be delisted, they shouldn't be able to sell. Um, but, and where I would put the limit, I'm not sure. If there's some way to know that a stock is going to go to zero and become untradeable, I'd say maybe that. But the fact is, even there are like ghost stocks that trade at pennies on the dollar for a while. But for me, simple bad news, expect missing earnings, or CEO gets fired, CEO passes away, I think that shouldn't be enough. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, how much insider uh, trading goes unnoticed? Like, for example, if uh, an individual makes a, a, a bunch of money by uh, using insider information to not engage in a trade, like how would, it, how would the regulators even notice something like that? 
Um, I don't know how much insider trading goes unnoticed, and I think it's almost impossible to know, in part because the definition is so fuzzy and what they're asking for is so impossible and nebulous. And um, yeah, I don't know. No, no, no. But I would have to not know because you said how much goes unnoticed. So. <laughs> Um, in a in an unregulated market, do you think a an exchange might have a rational basis for some contractual limits on who can trade under what circumstances at the exchange level, not an employer employee relationship, that sort of thing? Um, maybe. Uh, I can imagine someone saying that insiders don't get to sell on negative information. Right. Like uh, if you, it turns out that whether it's the um, especially, let's say, you know, we in a way hold CEOs and other leaders responsible even for the things that lower level employees do. Let's say you find out that lower level, you're the CEO, you found out that some lower level employees engage in accounting fraud. Now you have to report it. It's like things are going to look bad. Um, you didn't do it, but now, you know, you're the CEO. I think it would be a problem for the CEO to short the stock or sell the stock uh, because he now knows that one of his employees screwed up and the stock price is going to go down. So certain kinds of, uh, if you made the mess, I don't think you should be able to profit based on it. Um, and I can imagine exchange, exchanges putting rules in place to that effect. Um, it's difficult for me to imagine why it would be okay to say you can't buy stock on positive news. Someone might say it, um, or you know what? I'll take the back. To the extent that people really do buy into the intrinsic value conception of fairness, people buy that thing. And so I wouldn't be surprised if some exchanges built their rules around that idea and said, hey, if you're trading at a price that you know is gonna change based on inside information, it's almost like selling a car that's a lemon, but instead of the product being broken, the, the price is broken. And so even though I think it's wrong, I can imagine exchanges adopting that way, that approach and calling for restrictions on insider trading. Thank you. On the uh, prophylactic law, uh, could you perhaps uh, concretize this on some example? That's one question because I, I think I didn't get it you know, how, how in the real world this could be uh, this, a thing that's common, this, this could work. Uh, and the second question related is, has there been any real case uh, of prosecution that would uh, sort of invoke or th that would have been motivated by this uh, prophylactic law? 15 left. Um, zoning laws are a kind of prophylactic law. Um, the way things usually work with property is that um, people next to each other get to do whatever the heck they do on their property. As long as you're not trespassing on my land or you're not causing nuisances, which means, uh, you know, maybe you're playing music that's so loud that uh, it stops me from being able to use my property for what I want, or you're uh, uh, producing fumes and other problematic things that undermine the, me being able to enjoy my property. Usually that doesn't turn into an issue unless you bring a lawsuit. Um, but what zoning laws do is they say, we're not going to wait for the lawsuits. We're going to say that this part of the city is for commercial business. This part is for industrial. This part is for farming. This part is for residential. It's kind of a prophylactic thing. We're heading off the dispute kind of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and with insider trading laws and with a lo whole lot of other uh, securities regulations, we're saying we're going to make people disclose a lot of information, whether it's companies or other, uh, co the company itself, which has to do periodic reporting. And they're now putting out way more information than folks would volunteer to put out. Um, I think hedge funds might even have an obligation to uh, disclose their trades some point after they've been made, which gives some people insights into their strategies and plans. Um, 
you said how would it work or something to that effect? <clears throat> yeah, on, on some on some example, but you, I think you 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 sort of covered it. And second question was whether there has really been on the in the context of insider trading, has there been any such case that would have been motivated by this sort of uh, I, idea of prophylactic law in, um, in, in this context in insider trading? Um, I think there is a. It's. I, I think it's. I'm not, I think what happens is that the prophylactic thing in the insider trading context is more of a rationalization of what we're already doing. Um, I think a lot of scholars and lawyers like to do a kind of a kitchen sink method to explaining myself. It's like, I think it's theft, but even if you don't believe me that it's theft, it's also this other thing. And even if you don't believe that, it's this other thing over here. And so we get a lots of different explanations as to what's going on. Um, an actual securities regulation, a thing that looks like a prophylactic is more this law called, uh, this law that prohibits what we call short swing profits. If you're a director, an officer, or a holder of 10% or more of the stock of a company, you're not allowed to buy it and sell it in less than six months, or sell it and then buy it again in less than six months. And the idea is we want to prevent, uh, I think, market manipulation. The idea that you're doing stuff just to make the stock price move. Um, the thing that I actually like that law because it allows the company or the shareholders to decide whether or not they're gonna sue. If the directors and officers do it, you, it's just like unjust enrichment. You just take away the profits and you give it back to the company and you leave it to the board of directors and the stockholders to decide whether or not to sue and whether or not to consider it a problem. Um, so for me, um, the, the, the baseline expectation that it's illegal, but leaving it to the company and or stockholders to decide whether or not to pursue legal action, to me, I think that is like a sensible approach to it. Thank you. We have another question from the chat, again from uh, Alex. It's a question on being a fiduciary to one's employer as an employee. So Alex says, every quarter we get information of the standing of the company, its losses and growth. Am I understanding correctly that if an individual employee then trades on his company stock, that's insider trading uh, as well? If, you, uh, if, the, if the information is not available to the public at large, yes. And the problematic thing is that there's this fuzzy, there are lots of fuzzy areas in this place because like I said, the goal and the description is actually physically impossible and so the application has to be arbitrary. Um, we, people disagree about whether or not what counts as non-public information. You know, maybe the public knows the thing that you're being told, but maybe they don't. Even once it goes out there, how long does it have to be out there before it's really considered public? Um, what's considered material? non-public information. Like what if you're not even sure uh, that the fraud is important or that the deal is gonna go through for an acquisition? Um, people disagree as to what information counts as material, what's non-public, when is, when is it out there long enough to be considered public? There's all kinds of fuzzy areas. So yes, it applies to everyone all the way down the line. No, actually, let me go further. Rajraj Ratnam, Matthew Martoma, and Martha Stewart, they're not insiders. A significant number of the people who are punished for insider trading are not actual insiders to the company. And so the, in the first instance that this law was put into place, one of the things they made clear is if you're a lawyer that services the company on a contractual basis, if you're an investment bank that services the company on a contractual basis, some kind of supplier or customer, any kind of relationship to the uh, company, you can have, be held liable for insider trading even though you're not an insider. So definitely employees can be held liable. It's an ever-expanding definition of who counts who, and what doesn't count as a fiduciary relationship. And, unlawful trading. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, 
what kind of future do you think these laws, if we don't uh, start to reverse some of these trends and they keep sort of expanding these laws and making them arbitrary, wh where do you think that could lead and what kind of um, you know, uh, economic, um, well, la lack of respect for property rights and, and other kind of issues could evolve out of this in the future if this goes unchecked? Um, I think what's happening in insider trading law is kind of like a part of our long history of being suspicious of usury and profits generated in the field of finance. And so what you, the status quo leads to the status quo. And what that means is people like Roger Ochratnam, who I think is a relatively innocent guy, um, is punished for doing good work. You, you see that still happen systematically again and again. You had a guy named Michael Milken who revolutionized the, the finance industry by essentially finding ways to use debt instead of equity to finance really important um, takeovers and restructurings of organizations. Um, he, he, he created this kind of investment funnel where he expected people who he had helped in the past to contribute funds and investment to new investment endeavors that he was going to take on in the future. Um, and he made lots of people lots of money, uh, but he also sometimes had restructurings that had lower level employees get fired and executives get fired who had been like the grandson of the person who founded the company, people who thought they would never lose their jobs. Long story short, he, he made a lot of enemies. He got a lot of foot, he, uh, and those enemies went to Washington and not only destroyed his business, but got him arrested and got him thrown in jail as well. Um, in my mind, our suspicion of finance in general stops us from seeing why, how that kind of activity is productive, and it makes us put good people in jail. It makes us punish people for doing good work. And I think it would simply continue the status quo to not um, get folks to recognize that that's what's happening. So it could basically like reduce uh, financial innovation, like people coming up with new ways to finance companies and innovation. And, and yes. now people would be afraid to go into new territory and like develop new technologies or, or develop. I know. think it's more like you have arbitrary punishment of people who engage in financial innovation mm -hmm. because you still have people doing something that's a lot like what Michael Milken did, which is using debt and leverage buyouts and what people call like mezzanine financing to, um, fund and re the, the takeover and the restructuring of companies is done, it's just done slightly different, and, but Michael Milken can't do it. There's this other weird, I think, horrible part of securities regulation that allows the SEC to ban someone from participating in securities markets for life if they're ever convicted of certain things. And so Michael Milken is not, now no longer part of this industry. Raj Rajratnam is probably banned from participating in securities markets as a hedge fund manager. Um, so it's, it, to me, again, it's, it's going to be about the arbitrary restrictions and arbitrary punishments put in place. Um, I have a second quick question. Um, I was wondering, uh, just looking at over-regulation of securities markets in general, um, do you think that... Um, you know, for example, m most investors have only access to public markets and don't have access to private markets. And sometimes uh, companies will actually choose to not go public because they don't want to deal with like the, you know, crap that you have to deal with in terms of the overregulation of public markets. And so I was wondering, do you think that part of the reason why, uh, you know, smaller investors don't have access to certain private companies? That, that that causation of that ultimately lies in the fact that public markets are overregulated. Like for example, Elon Musk doesn't want to take SpaceX public because uh, or, to, or or give smaller investors like access to purchase the stock. Um, um I um, that's probably a part of the reason. I also think um, the average intelligent small investor would avoid. 
public markets if we weren't funneled into them so heavily. Like the fact that with your retirement accounts and your 401k is, and all that other stuff, if you have these from your job, they are often funneling you into mutual funds and other and index funds and other kinds of investments. There's lots of activity, despite the fact that we undermine and punish um, productive finance activity, there's also lots of efforts to funnel the ordinary person's money into securities markets. And so on the one hand, yes, punish someone like Michael Milken and the ordinary investor finds it harder to generate profits while trading. Um, but also, uh, if it, I think if we weren't so obsessed about making people invest in those markets, people might find other ways to generate retirement income or uh, side income. You know, maybe we'd uh, reduce in the way we have a 10% tax on capital gains and dividends. Maybe we should do that for uh, uh, overtime income. Maybe we should do the same thing for incomes related to uh, investing in a friend's small business or something. But I think it's a kind of a mixed bag and it's hard to tell. But uh, we got five minutes left, so let me grab the next question. Thank you. Uh, kind of, I, I guess, uh, uh, related to that last part of that question, I'm curious if you've heard any talk in the political world about any attempts of the government to apply insider trading laws or to criminalize insider trading in the context of private markets? Um, not uh, attempts to criminalize insider. Um, so one, insider trading has been applied to private companies. And the way it usually works is that uh, if a company has a stock repurchase pro, uh, a policy, uh, uh, concrete case, um, you have a company that it's private and still compensates its employees with its stock, uh, you, they usually also have in place something to the effect of once you leave the company, you have to return the stock to us. And for some specified formula, um, there's at least two cases out there where the company, some guy is quitting because his wife wants to live in a different place. Um, the company says, fine, we'll take back the stock. Sorry to see you go. Um, and he finds out later that some really big deal was going to happen that was to make the stock much more valuable. But they didn't tell him that when he was quitting. And they get held liable for insider trading, the company. The, so the information is supposed to be used to make the company better. The company didn't tell an employee that this important thing was happening. The company gets held liable for insider trading. And they have to give up some amount of funds to the guy. Um, so it already happens if... Uh, uh, but separate and apart from that, there has been like a, a, a ramp up of the number of companies that stay private. They deal with private equity or they simply operate as the strategic acquisition of a company like Facebook, the way WhatsApp and Instagram got acquired by Facebook instead of going public on their own. There are a lot of securities regulators out there who are super bothered by this because it reduces the amount of disclosures that these important companies have to make. And so I think that it has nothing to do with insider trading, but there is like, I think, a buzzing happening out there where like lawmakers want to do something to allow us to get more information pulled out of private companies since fewer important companies are becoming public. Thank you. Uh, one more. Uh, thanks. Love the talk. So one of the things is, what are the typical waiting periods between the time when information is released to the public and then it can be actionable for a trade? So you said that, for instance, many of these CEOs are not allowed or any fiduciaries or people associated to these companies are not allowed to execute any sort of trades before this type of information being released. Yeah. So, okay, it's released. When can I act upon it? A day? A week? That's so nebulous a thing that people won't do it. 
And so what's in place now with the SEC has created, or people probably have tried and got, you know, there were problems over answering the question, when is the information out there long enough for it to be considered public? What's in place now to try and avoid that question is this thing called a uh, uh, 10B51 trading plan. It's supposed to be a trading plan in which insiders come up with rules and mechanisms ahead of time that they put in place to decide when they're going to buy and sell things that's supposed to essentially make it look like they're not trading on insider information. Okay, that's, um, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, uh, it is. And so like it's, 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 it's set up to create what we call a safe harbor. But on the one hand, um, essentially, you still have congressmen and women who, especially uh, 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 Congressman Maxine Waters, essentially oh. really upset thinking these people are still generating out higher than average profits. They're still making yeah. higher than average returns compared to the ordinary person, which they're insiders, so why wouldn't they? Um, and so people are saying this, this safe harbor trading plan isn't working because it still looks like insider trading. So that's the thing that's been put in place to try and avoid the problem, but people are still unhappy with it because insiders still seem to be outperforming the ordinary person. So now folks are going after that plan as well. Okay, just one more thing. Um, so I, I work in decentralized finance, so crypto web three, and that's the complete wild west so there's no, absolutely no regulations usually what happens is that investors what they do is obviously because they can't control the flow of information what they do is they try to track uh, accounts and wallets of the people that are actually associated with each project and what happens is the focus shifts from the free flow of information to monitoring economic activity from people associated with projects do you think that what do you think about in the traditional finance world where it's much easier because in order to have bank accounts, you obviously need to provide your personal information. We have something like that's in place. It's called um, uh, the, the, the short swing profits thing I told you about um, yeah. where, you know, directors, officers, 10% owners can't buy and sell within six months or sell and buy within six months. Um, in order to track that, those individuals have to report five days after they buy or sell anything, what they bought and sold on these forms. So those individuals are tracked um, in terms of what they buy and sell within the company, not necessarily their bank accounts. But um, we're actually out of time. So I will stick around for a little bit and I'm happy to answer any additional questions, uh, though I am gonna be heading over to Greg's talk. But until, you know, between now and then, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to stick around for like 10 to 15 minutes. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to einran.org.